It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Reds, your daily Cincinnati Reds podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome into your daily source for the Cincinnati Reds throughout the offseason. This is the Locked On Reds podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Carr. And here we go. What is going on, Reds fans? Welcome into the Locked On Reds podcast. It's a Wednesday, it's hump day, and today is the first part of my interview with Sam LeCure, the man who used to come out of the bullpen for the Reds, the man with the iconic mustache. I got him with me today on the podcast and tomorrow as well. Hope you guys enjoy it. Here is my interview with Sam LeCure. All righty, for today's show, I've got on the phone with me a man who used to come out of the bullpen, a reliever extraordinaire. Mr. Sam LeCure is joining me on today's podcast. Sam, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for the intro. I thought you had somebody else. I was like, wait a minute. He, he can't talk about me. <laughs> uh, well, I'm doing good, man. How are you? Oh, man, I, I'm doing awesome. And, and I don't mean to be – I'm not being sarcastic or facetious. I really <laughs> loved seeing you come out of the bullpen. And, and actually, something to ask you right off the bat, because you are one of the – select few and that you have iconic facial hair <laughs> what does yeah, I, uh, it's actually in mid-season form right now for some reason i don't know what it was i think i just uh <laughs> after the season you know being on being on with the reds broadcast the uh for fox sports ohio you know i was trying to keep fairly clean shaven for the year and then once the season was over I knew I was going to be doing some traveling, so I just kind of let let the beard go, which is what I used, you know, which is kind of my go-to as far as that is. And then I was like, man, I kind of, I, this is going to be surprising to some people, but I kind of miss my face, so I uh, <laughs> so I shaved the mustache back in. And man, I'm telling you what, I'm this my mustache might sign a big league contract before I do, so uh, <laughs> it's feeling pretty it's feeling pretty good right now. Well, that actually kind of answers a question for me because I was I was wondering, especially during your playing days, how often with that because I know like reporters always ask like James Harden these questions and things like that. But how often did you consider going clean shaven back in your playing days? Uh, never, never, because in the <laughs> minor leagues, um, well, really, I think I think it kind of started for me coming up through through uh, high school ball when I started to play select ball we'd go around to these different tournaments and I was pretty baby-faced anyway but you know you're going to these recruiting tournaments uh, you know where colleges can come out and see a lot of people and the guy who was coaching us is always talking about projectability he's like we want them we don't want them to see you with baby or you know with uh, (laughs) a beard or with a bunch of facial hair because we want them to think you're young you've got a lot of your body you've got a lot of maturing to do so when I was in that at that time I was always uh clean shaven for that reason so i was a starting pitcher back then so that was part of my routine every day uh, the day before every start i had i made sure i was clean shaven uh that kind of continued into to college uh for the same reasons and then once i got into pro ball with the reds there was a facial hair policy so it was growing uh, so I, you weren't allowed to grow facial hair in the minor leagues 
Um, and then once I got to the big leagues and could grow my facial hair however I wanted, well, I was tired of shaving by that point, and I didn't need to pre- be projectable anymore. So I decided that uh, I'd grow some facial hair. And I've got sensitive skin, so I haven't put a, an actual straight razor to my face uh, in probably almost 10 years. Man, nice. I, I just always wondered that because I'm, a, you know, just seeing guys with um, kind of like you said, the projectability, having almost a brand with that yeah. uh, always made me wonder, like, how often did you just think about just blowing up the brand and starting over? But that looking back at your playing career, you were a very versatile pitcher. You had a lot of different roles, a lot of different roles throughout even just one season. How how did you get ready, get yourself going, especially like if they called you up from the bullpen, they're like, hey, we need you to throw a couple innings, or hey, we need you to throw an out or two. Like how did that differ? It was never, I mean, that was never predetermined. I mean, as, at least as far as I knew. You know, I was just going to go in there and, you know, having a starting background, I always felt like I could navigate through, you know, a couple innings, and I know that they, you know, at times it was going to be called for, for me to do that. If the starter went short, you know, and I was in the bullpen and I was the first guy up, at that point I knew that they were, you know, I was going to try to get out as quick as I can and stretch it out as long as I could and go as long as I could. Um, but that was never, for me, really predetermined. You know, when the phone rings, every time the phone rang, I thought I was the best man for the job. So I was, you know, immediately locked in and focused, uh, you know, right from, right from the get-go. Because, like you said, I was versatile. I did pitch all over, so there was never any – set spot where I was going to be, you know, like, hey, I'm going to pitch the sixth or seventh inning. You know, it was always going to be – it was a crapshoot. So, um, you know, as far as that goes, I prepared the same way. I prepared to go out there and pitch until somebody pried the ball out of my hand. You know what I mean? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. that was the mentality I had was, as a starter. I knew that I had the ability to throw a number of innings because – because of that starter's background, so it was always I wanted to, I wanted to finish the game every time I came into the game. You know, I knew that wasn't you know reality, but um, I always felt like I was capable. Would you say that there's a majority of pitchers nowadays that have that feeling like, oh, I'm a ninth inning guy through and through, or I'm an eighth inning guy through and through, and I don't know why I would pitch anywhere else. Um, I think it started. That's starting to change a little bit. I think, uh, you know, a few years ago, Andrew Miller was a guy who really started to kind of change the thinking, and that's probably even more a credit to to Terry Francona, who was the manager when he started doing that with the Indians, really using him in the highest leverage situation at that point, you know, and that could be in the fifth, the sixth, the whatever it was. Now, Andrew Miller's a closer type of guy. He's they were their best reliever, but they had another guy who was pretty good at the back end that they could kind of use in that ninth. And, you know, for Terry Francona to use him, it was like, oh, hey, we're going to go up against, you know, it's three, four, five coming up, and there's already a runner on base. We need, we're, we got to put our best bullet because there is no ninth inning without us getting these outs right now. And I, that's the way I always felt. People said, like, hey, man, like, you probably don't have the stuff. <laughs> I appreciate it. But, uh, <laughs> You know, you but it seems like you have the mentality to close. Would you ever want to try to do so? And I was like, not really. I was like, I've always felt like there are outs throughout the game that are much more important than those last three. And I think that at that time, that was probably 2015 or 16 or somewhere around there when when Andrew Miller started to I think change the thinking a little bit and like your ability to get more than just three outs out of your best relief pitcher. And I, I you know, obviously 
the game has started to shift in a number of different ways. I certainly think that that's one of them. You talk about with the Reds, Rysel Iglesias this year, over the past – Say for this year, the past couple of years he's been he's been excellent at going multiple innings, and he's a guy. If he's your best bullet, you want to make sure you're getting him out there in situations that you know you can get the most value out of him. I mean, that's what that's what organizations and and general managers and whatnot are looking for. They're looking for how to extract the most value out of each of the pieces of their team. Talk about Michael Lorenzen and his ability to shift over and play some center field and get a pinch hit and, you know, do a couple different things out of the bullpen. And, like, they can extract as much value out of of him as possible. It almost turns their roster into 26 people. So, um, but to answer your question, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, there is a shift in the thinking about, guys not getting so settled into one inning because they see, you know, when you look across the field and you see a, well, who'd be a good guy to use as, a, as an example, whoever, to, you know, kind of an elite an elite relief pitcher, you know, on the other team, and he goes in in the eighth inning when he's usually their ninth inning guy. It's like, oh, wow, that guy's doing it. Well, I need to be able to do that too. He's their most valuable bullpen piece. I want to be a valuable bullpen piece. For me to do that, I need to be able to be versatile. And whenever you think of looking back on your career, because like you said, you came up as a starter and kind of talking about like Iglesias and Lorenzen, they they started out in the rotation and then they kind of worked their way into the bullpen and really got good in their roles. Yeah. At what point did you kind of think, you know what, okay, maybe the starting thing was the past and now this bullpen thing, that's my focus now? Um. I, I was always kind of kind of bummed out that I didn't get a chance to start more, to be honest with you, um, because I didn't think I did a horrible job when I get when I got called up. I, I faced off with some some pretty good starting pitchers, and, and we lost most of the games. But I kind of kept us in the game, sure. uh, you know, for that matter. And then it was kind of a, neat, a a necessity thing, and I think that they saw my stuff play up a little bit. But everybody's stuff plays up when they when they go to from throwing you know, six or seven innings to, to one inning or one out or whatever it is. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, at, at that point it was just kind of, well, if this is my, you know, if this is the role that I can stay in the big leagues and yeah, I'm happy to do it. You know, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the fact that I got to play more, you know, that was something for me that I really, um, I felt like they got a lot of value out of me because I, I would just pitch in and they wanted me to. I didn't, I didn't ask for days off. I didn't need, you know, if I pitched two days in a row, I didn't need two days off to recover. I wanted the ball again. I said, yeah, of course I got an out. I, I wasn't a guy who had to go out there with my best stuff to get somebody out because I didn't have good stuff anyway. I just could kind of put it where I wanted to and, you know, change speeds and disrupt timing. And that's uh, – I'll segue a little bit here. Dusty Baker was in town. Our, I live in, outside of L.A., and he was in town last night, and we went out and had a – uh, had a Diet Coke and, uh, you know, got to talking about the different ways of pitching and the different way guys use. You know, he's always got his finger on the pulse of what's going on around baseball, and obviously his name's been thrown around in some managerial uh, openings. But, um, you know, just talking about the different ways that guys do things and now everybody has to be at peak physical performance or else they don't feel like they can play, you know, and that's just that's, that, that's a shift in the, in, in the philosophy of baseball too. Do you think he'll manage this year? Um, I sure hope he does, but I'm I'm not sure that the the opportunity that he's wanting 
has presented itself, and I think also he's, you know, he's getting to this point where his son's a junior in college now, and you know, this is a big year for him as far as you know his draft eligibility to go and start start his professional career. Uh, so I think I think Dusty is excited to be around and watch that too. Of course, if the right, you know, he told me he asked his son, hey, if the right job comes around, like, you know, and of course. Darren said, go ahead, man. But, uh, you know, so we'll see how that goes. I, I definitely don't want to speak out of turn for Dusty. I know he certainly would love the, love the right opportunity to manage again. Yeah, for sure. And just looking back on how that all went down with the transition from him to Brian Price, I know that it was almost like there were two camps amongst fans. It's like you either thought that Dusty got a raw deal or you thought that it was Brian Price's turn. How did you perceive all of that? Uh, you know, some of the stuff that, I don't know, that's hard to speak on as a player. I mean, it's not hard to speak on as a player, but it's just you have to walk a line there between, you know, can I, can you go out in public? Can you have your own opinion on it? Yeah, you have to have your opinion on if you thought, you know, Dusty was the guy or th- whatever the case may be or if it was time for a change of, you know, a voice in there and, um you know, I just had so much respect for both guys. Obviously, you know, Dusty was my manager and Brian was my pitching coach, and I had great relationships with both of them. And, you know, I still have relationships with them both to this day. And, you know, in those moments when, when things start to happen like that where they're making a change or, you know, what you, you, to some degree you, you kind of have to walk the company line. You know what I mean? Right. To some degree, that's that's the case, and you have to respect. You know, whatever, regardless of what I thought, the change was made. You know what I mean? And I still got to go out there, and I still have a job to do. I can't control who they feel like is the best guy to lead the team. You know, they didn't ask, they didn't call me and ask me my opinion. If they would, I would have given it to them. Um, and what that was at the time is probably different than it is now. I, I'll I'll tell you that much. That's understandable. Like we always have the benefit of. A hindsight. I know, you know, I have the misfortune of also being a Bengals fan, and we're all <laughs> looking right now and being like, wow, should we have gotten rid of Marvin Lewis? But, but you yeah, know, you yeah. just you just never can tell. It's 2020, like they always say. Um, uh-huh. Can it? Changing gears a little bit because I I know that you have been a little bit of a world traveler here lately. Been uh-huh. been to Mexico and been to Europe and stuff like that. Like just kind of what have those travels been like? Because I know myself, I can't wait at some point in my life to get to Italy and just have an awesome bite of pizza. <laughs> yeah, well, they have it there, that's for sure. Um, what's that been like? You know, it's been kind of. Um, kind of a spiritual awakening in a lot of ways is, is the reason that I started to travel. Um, you know, everybody, no matter what they say, well, has something going on in their life, whether it be a family member, you know, a career situation, whatever it is. So that was kind of the, I was going through one of those times and I felt like I needed to go uh, and do some things away from that and have, you know, search for some of this spiritual growth. So I didn't, you know, I was kind of lost, you know, after I got done playing ball and, uh, you know, I was like, man, I I just don't know what to do with myself. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go see the world and I'm going to go and help people while I do it. So the first trip I took was, you know, three years ago, I went down to Bali, um, 
and had an amazing experience there. I was helping the the townspeople build a temple, and you know, sp- you know, spent some time down there with them. They're just amazing people. And then last year, I was in South Africa. Uh, you know, I did a safari for a couple for a couple weeks, and then spent another week down there uh, doing some volunteer again with some with some underprivileged kids, which, in the, for the most part, they all are. Um, and then this year, this year was kind of a, a a year where I didn't feel like I was going to do any volunteering, but I wanted to take. I've always wanted to take my mom to Italy. She's to Rome specifically. She's. Uh, I was raised Catholic. She's still a, a very Catholic woman, and I thought that would be just such a neat experience for her. I'm the youngest of eight kids, but her and I are very close. Uh, and always have been. I'm probably going to get in trouble for not calling her since I got back from Mexico yesterday. <laughs> She's going to be wondering if I'm alive or dead after the college buddies trip. So uh, we had an amazing time in, in Rome. Um, you know, we we ran, went around and, and saw all the sites and spent time in the Vatican and saw the Colosseum and, um, you know, had a little food tour that was kind of off the one of those things. It's like off the beaten path. You know, that's the first time she's ever been out of the country. And, you know, I felt responsible to, to obviously be a good tour guide, but wanted her to experience the culture the way that I would if I was on my own, which is not to go and see all the sites, the sites, it's to go and see the people. Because uh, the people always make always make those trips really special. Uh, you start to learn about them and learn about, you know, I was in South Africa and you start talking about apartheid and, you know, in, in Bali and, and some of the things that they have going on there, very religious country. Um you know, it doesn't matter what religion, for the most part, they're all based upon the same thing, and that's treating your, you know, treating the person next to you well, and it really comes down to being as simple as that. So, uh, we we had a great time. We took a little car ride uh, up the coast through the Tuscan region, and uh, spent a day in Florence, and then I bounced over to London for a couple of days, and was having, uh, kind of having my dream car built over there. So I went in to check on it, and then I was back in LA for. Oh, I don't know, three or four days, and then, like I said, I just got back from Mexico yesterday. Was uh, had a trip with a bunch of college buddies. I played baseball at the University of Texas. Uh, we all got together and went did a little golf trip. Did some offshore fishing one day. Uh, like you and I talked before, uh, Bronson Arroyo was down there just by chance, staying in the same <laughs> the same area of Cabo that we were. Uh, so we got to, he came over and, and the boys got to hang out with him. I, you know, I speak pretty highly of Bronson and, um, got to hang out with him. He went out and played golf with us today. And, uh, unfortunately we didn't have a guitar. I'm sure we would have had a little jam session. Everybody was out of voice from talking too much. <laughs> so it would have been a quiet one, but, uh, we had a real good time. So the travels have been great. I, I really enjoy them, uh, getting to, getting to see the world. We're so fortunate here. And I don't think that people even have the, the slightest idea of how fortunate we are here. So um, I would always encourage people to go out and go somewhere uh, that's – I don't want to say a third-world country necessarily, but you know, go somewhere and see what those people have. And then you know, go to the Dominican Republic. Go down there and watch some baseball. Go watch some winter ball down in the Dominican Republic. Uh, and when you have to you know, carry your own roll of toilet paper around and you're lucky to get a hot shower – just those little simple things like that. I was like, wow, I totally take that for granted, and, and I don't anymore. You know, I'm I'm trying to be very thankful of the things that we have here, and that's that's part of it too, is gaining perspective. Uh, you know, by by jumping around the world, so so that's been really good. That's awesome, and I mean, there's there's so many things there, and and this is going to sound so funny because you know you talked about the the third world countries and things like that, but the one thing that I wonder, because I'm kind of a car guy 
What kind of car yeah. did you drive around the Tuscan countryside? Uh, I, well, I figured when in Rome, you got to grab you a Ferrari. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. So me and, uh, me and mom, boy, she was white knuckling it uh, the whole way up. But, you know, that's what those cars are for. It's, they were beautiful highways. And really, I'll tell you what stood out is that people really, in my opinion, really understand the, how to drive a motor vehicle on a highway. If you're going slower, you get in the right lane. If you're going faster, you get in the left lane. And those people don't sit there and hang out in the passing lane the whole time. Boy, I tell you what, if they pass somebody, they get right over. They're looking in the rear view. They see me coming uh, and coming quick, and they get over. And uh, so, man, we, we, had a, we had a blast. It was, it was such a cool ride. and It was up for F, F, uh, 488 Spider, which just means convertible. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got to cook them pretty good. Man, there's some Ohio drivers that could learn a lesson or two from those. <laughs> there's, there's some everybody. I didn't even bring my, I didn't even bring a car out to L.A. because I didn't even want to start putting up with this bull Ooh. out here. Yeah. I if I can't you. take my bike there, I don't go. <laughs> I do not blame you at all. What? Yeah. And and you mentioned um, how life kind of changed for you after you retired. What was? I'm always curious of this. What was the first thing you did after you retired from baseball? Um. Well, I tried to just find ways to fill. You just try to find a way to fill the day. Um, really, because you go from eight months. And this is people have asked me to do a podcast, a different my own, and I just can't find something that I really that really jumps out to me that I think people would be interested to know. Man, that the transition period from baseball uh, into real life is is mainly tough because of routine. You know, you talk about guys. Some people want to call it superstition. Some people call it routine. It's all the same thing. It's knowing that you're going to be at the ballpark from. February 15th to September 31st with the same people at the same time of day doing the same things every day. You don't have to think about it. It's thoughtless. You just go through, this is just what you do. It's your body's conditioned, you know, to go through all these things. And then when you go from having your 10 hours a day at the ballpark or whatever it is, you know, and your eight or 10 hours of sleep, whatever that there's, you know, you only had to fill four hours. And for the most part, that's getting up and spending time with your significant other, having lunch, taking a walk, whatever it is, and then then you're set. And you know what you got to do. And you know after the season you've got about a month off, and then you're starting your workouts. And then you start tailoring your days around that to your workout times, your meal times, you're spending time with loved ones, and you got holidays, and you're going to do a little bit of traveling for that. But then all that's gone. And then you got 12 months, 24 – you got 24 hours a day, 365 days that you now have to fill. Um that was really tough. So it was a lot of golf at first. You get, I got bored of playing golf, uh, especially when I realized I wasn't very good at it. And then, you know, uh, you know, then trying, trying some other things. It was, you know, I started taking courses to be, to go to real estate. I was prepared to, to enroll in a community college, uh, to become a fireman. Um, and then that was when I was, Probably about two weeks before I was supposed to enroll to to be the fireman, then I got a phone call from Fox Sports saying, "Hey, would you like an opportunity, you know, to come and do this?" And uh, it didn't take me long to think about it because I could always go to school to be a fireman, and this opportunity to to work in baseball and 
uh, I, I thought was a, a short window just based on relevance, you know, and, you know, if I wouldn't have done it, then in two years, then somebody else was going to retire and some, or, and then they were going to get the opportunity to do it because they were more relevant to the game at that point. They understood the analytics better, the, whatever the case was. So I felt like it was something that I had to jump right on. Uh, and I'm thankful that I did because it's, it's been really nice to be around the ballpark and, you know, have some kind of a schedule, you know, and then be able to get into Cincinnati, whether I was flying in or out, and people think that sounds glamorous or not, or maybe they think it sounds terrible. Either way, when I got there, I knew that I was going to be there for a number of days. I knew when the ball game was. I knew when I was going to get to work, and I knew that the time of the day that I had to fill was everything to that, and I could start that with breakfast and a workout and a phone call and practice a guitar and read a book or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um it just provided structure, and that's that's the tough part is just being having to create your whole structure out of thin air. It feels like you know because I wasn't prepared to be done playing. You know that was it was a little bit of a shock to me. So uh, I was I was fully unprepared uh, to begin that second portion of life. Well, that's all right. I, I've enjoyed uh, seeing you on the pregame and the postgame thus far, and just uh, looking forward to what more awaits you there we're gonna stop the broadcast right there make sure you tune in tomorrow for the second half of the interview with sam liqueur we get into what the reds looked like in 2019 and take a look at where they're going in 2020 you won't want to miss it and the best way to not miss that is to make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on all the many podcasting platforms also follow us on twitter at locked on reds and at jeff carr that way, you get updates each and every day. I tweet about some other things, whether it be what's going on in the World Series, what's going on in football, all that good stuff. And with college basketball coming up, there'll be that too. Thanks so much for listening to the Wednesday edition of the podcast. Tomorrow, part two with Sam LeCure. My name is Jeff Carr, and I'll talk to you guys then. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.